thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey everyone, Vincent Aiello here, your usual host of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. This week's show is a continuation of the Century Series, and it's episode 105, so of course we're talking about the Republic F-105 Thunder Chief, a.k.a. the Thud. Well, my co-host Trevor Boswell conducted this interview just like he did the F-100 a couple shows back, and you know what? I've actually got a few things to take care of elsewhere, so I'm going to step aside and let him take this one with you. I'll catch you towards the end for a quick announcement. Otherwise, take it away, boat. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, former U.S. Air Force F-16 pilot, Trevor Boswell. Thanks, Jello. Man, you weren't kidding about being cleared solo. This is just like my first solo in an airplane, actually. I can remember my instructor telling me to pull off to the ramp and he was going to go check something out, as he said in quotes there. I'll tell you what, as soon as he's out the door, he turned around, told me to take her for a few laps, close the door, and just started waving as I stared back in disbelief. And here goes nothing. And unfortunately, as I record this on the 20th of February in 2021, I have to first mention the tragic news from last night out of Montgomery, Alabama, where a T-38, which was based at Columbus Air Force Base in Mississippi, crashed on final approach during a cross-country training sortie. And sadly enough, neither the Japanese Air Self-Defense Force student nor the U.S. Air Force instructor pilot survived the mishap. And at this point, we don't really have too many details as to the cause of the accident, but we do mourn their losses and pass on our condolences from here, the podcast, to the families, friends, and squatter mates of both aviators. And I know from my experience in military aviation, I've lost a few people that uh, either I was an acquaintance with, friends with, or otherwise. And I think we can all appreciate that military aviation is not your normal nine-to-five job. It just isn't. While we do as much as we possibly can to mitigate the risk via you know safety briefings or mission planning, and frankly, even experience, all of that just may not be able to overcome everything you may be exposed to out there when you're actually in the airplane in the heat of battle or on an instrument sortie. Hopefully at the end of the day, something good can come out of this. And even if you know the investigations find that it was pilot error, those two pilots' sacrifices will hopefully save the life of somebody else down the road. And that's all we can really hope for. But at this point, Godspeed to them. And uh, we wish all their squatter mates, classmates, uh, the best through their uh, careers and in the future. Well, transitioning into more enjoyable news, last week's episode in the F-104 Starfighter was a huge hit. It was an awesome episode. And although some listeners wondered why Jello and Fleckwa didn't discuss the distinct howl of a Starfighter's engine, and a few mentioned that they didn't mention the NF-104 variant or that the plane made a brief cameo in one of the Star Trek movies. And you know what? You got us. I mean, we do our best to cover everything on this show, and 
And frankly, there is a lot, but we'll invariably miss something. So we are not perfect. We definitely don't claim to be, but we do strive to be. So as we always like to say, any good debrief is uh, ranks off. And that goes for uh, fans of the show, listeners of the show. We appreciate any um, and all feedback and want that so that we can make ourselves better and and turn this show into a better platform in the future. So please uh, send it our way in whatever form that takes. Now, I will say, though, Flecko was a good sport. He kindly returned back to the show last weekend, and both he and his countryman Stace from the F101 episode joined a couple of live Zoom calls with several of the show's exclusive Patreon supporters, and they answered some questions and just generally hung out for a little bit, which was a really good time, frankly. So if you like what that sounds like or that's something that's interesting uh, for you, head over to patreon.com and search for the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And that's one of those perks that we provide that you can take advantage of. So please head on over if it feels like that's something you want to do. All right. Well, before we get to the meat of the mission today, the Republic F-105 Thunder Chief, bear with me as we've got a a few things here in the old listener mailbag that uh, I want to get out there. And the first one is an email from Pinto. So he asks, do military pilots get fined for making mistakes in training? Maybe things like shooting commercial aircraft down or friendly airplanes or something like that. So Gabriel, yeah, the short answer is yes. And I chatted with Jello about this briefly, but both the Air Force and the Navy, uh, Marines and whatnot, all have some kind of system in place to penalize people for doing something incorrectly. Each squadron has a set of standards that include specific expectations for each of its assigned pilots and the appropriate fine for failing to meet them. And they're pretty similar across all of the services. And especially in like a giant red flag type of scenario where you've got a lot of aircraft flying and a lot of pilots in the debrief, you'll see a pretty standardized set of rules that they're all familiar with. But specific to your question, other things or what are the things that they can be fined with? Again, like you mentioned, shooting down a non-combatant like a commercial airliner, fratricide, or uh, also known as shooting down a friendly aircraft. Those are all included. And the fines can range from anywhere between money, between pilots directly or gifts to the bar. So five bucks or up to a hundred, depending on how egregious an error was and when the error was determined. So, you know, you look at air to air and that's probably the predominant place for where these things will be penalized because that's the majority of the training that takes place in fighter aircraft, specifically air to air platform capable aircraft. And we take pride in our work and we want to make sure we're doing it the right way. And I think everybody is honest and that integrity level is very high. And so they are willing to fess up their mistakes so that they can get better in the future. So having high levels of SA at all times is kind of what we strive for and pride ourselves on. And as long as you can do that using all the different tools available to you, whether that's AWACS, your own radar and your aircraft, data link, all that kind of stuff. If you lose it, you may pay the consequences. And hopefully at least if it's just in training, it's just a financial penalty because obviously in combat, it could be a lot, lot worse. So we want to make sure that we're doing our best in training and and that uh, is just how we roll. Now, air-to-surface attacks have their own penalties in a way, but it's a little more clear-cut and straightforward, I'd say. So when you're thinking about dropping bombs, if you're actually dropping bombs, whether they're live ordnance or inert bombs, it's pretty easy to tell whether you were successful in your attack. You hit it, you see the smoke or the dust cloud rise on the target, that's a win, success. And if you miss it, well, you miss it, and that's a failure. So it's pretty straightforward in that respect. However, there are some games that we play, if you will, 
that you know maybe we need to dig a bit further into as a topic for another episode for another day. I don't know. What do you think? All right. Well, switching gears now with a phone call from Gabriel Brown. This is Gabriel Brown from Mobile, Alabama. I'm currently a student at the University of South Alabama, and in May I'll be commissioning as a lieutenant in the Air Force and then heading off to pilot training after that to hopefully start my dream career. But uh, anyway, to the question I was going to ask, I love your podcast. I have absolutely loved listening to the episodes number one through 100, just learning about all of these pilots and CISOs and officers and crews experiences with these aircraft and with the people they've been working with. And I've enjoyed listening to plenty of you and your experiences. But I'm just curious, do you guys ever plan on doing any episodes on any of the old warbirds, anything like the P-51 Mustang or the P-47 Thunderbolt or the Warhawk? I was thinking about it today. You know, I don't speak for the rest of the listeners, but I would love to hear you guys bring somebody with knowledge about those birds. I know you guys have done the bombers, but that's because it's bomber month and that's what you cover. But what about the old fighters? You know, the old prop fighters that fought in World War II and some in Korea. There are definitely some amazing stories behind those. And the people who flew them, you know, unfortunately are getting to the age where we might not have too many of them around anymore. So it's just a question of curiosity. You guys inspire me. So thank you very much. Well, Gabriel, funny you should ask. As of this episode airing, I'm actually proud to say that I've got a couple of Warbird episodes in the can already, and a third one is planned to record actually this coming weekend. Now, I won't ruin all the surprises as to what we're going to be talking about, but I think you're all going to enjoy our guests and their incredible stories, and specifically their time in combat for the ones that have done so. And heck, I mean, one of them is even a prisoner of war in World War II, so I can't wait for you guys to hear the incredible stories that these fine folks have shared with me. I hope to make this a regular occurrence. So keep your ears out for those in the next couple of months. I think you'll really enjoy them. Now we do have one more question that was sent in that I'll save for after the interview, because I think I've delayed long enough, frankly, in the hopes that Jello is going to come back and rescue you. But alas, it looks like you guys are stuck with me. Oh, well, it's a much needed break for him for sure. He's a busy guy and he does a lot for this show and for the listeners out there. So I think he deserves a break. But with that, we'll jump right into the interview with Colonel Morrissey and Just one more thing before I hit play. I wanted to disclose that there's at least one swear word that I can remember hearing during the recording, but you know, I think we can forgive Colonel Morrissey that one minor indiscretion given the seriousness of this business and the ferocity of the conflict. I mean, heck, he's a fighter pilot, right? All right. Other than that, it's an amazing tale he tells. So without further ado, let's roll it. Well, welcome everyone. This is Boat back with you as we start to conclude our look at the Century Series. And today I'm lucky enough to get to discuss the Republic F-105 Thunder Chief with our guest, Colonel John Morrissey. Now, I selected this episode not only because of the awesome aircraft, but because it also happens to be the mascot of my ROTC alma mater, Detachment 105, at the University of Colorado. So I'd be remiss if I didn't at least acknowledge them and say, go Buffs! Well, today I find myself outside of Kansas City, Missouri at the hangar of today's guest, Colonel John Morrissey, a 25-year Air Force veteran, also a weapons school graduate and Vietnam combat veteran with over 1,571.2 hours of total time in the F-105. Of that, 486.7 were in combat with over 200 combat sorties. In today's subject, the F-105 Thunder Chief. Sir, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Glad to be here. Man, I'm excited. This is all good stuff. And frankly, that resume alone is pretty intimidating for somebody that doesn't have anywhere near that uh, kind of combat experience. So I'm excited to hear what you have to tell us about the THUD and uh, your time specifically in combat in Vietnam. 
with that resume, anything else we should know before we uh, jump into the rest of this interview? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, maybe the 2,200 hours in the A7 that I finished the war in. <laughs> oh, see, now we're getting somewhere. This is good. All right. Well, I, did I think not mean that I had 2,200 more hours in the war, but that was the airplane. We'd run out of 105s by 69. Yeah. So for linebacker two and all that, we went to the A7. Slight upgrade in some forms and fashions. Exactly. <laughs> that might be a good happy hour discussion at a minimum to chat over a mm-hmm. couple of drinks or whatnot. Well, let's get started with this amazing aircraft. And I know you've got plenty to talk about, and I can't wait to hear the stories. So for everybody, the F-105 Thunder Chief is a Vietnam-era fighter, as everybody is probably well aware at this point, part of the Century Series. Sir, for you coming into the aircraft, when was your first exposure to it? You mean when did I first go to 105 school? Yeah. I can do this pretty accurately. It was uh, June of uh, 1963. Okay. And when you went to F-105 school, how did they... I guess, introduce you to it, and what did they tell you it was for? I mean, everybody knew what it was for, so I don't remember any kind of formal introduction. Okay. 105, really, it was operational service from 58 on, maybe 57. The B models were the first ones. Okay. They were, I would say, individual prototypes. They built about 80-some of them, but I was told each one of them had a different wiring diagram. But then when they got organized, the D model which was another single-seater, mm-hmm. as all fighters should be, that's the one that I flew. And they built 625 of those. Yep. My fact sheet says 610, but, you know, that's oh, well. splitting hairs at this point. So would the majority of your time then have been spent in the D? Well, that's not quite true. I flew the F occasionally and didn't want okay. to. And, and then the G model was the F model designed and optimized for the anti-SAM warfare mission, the weasels. The wild weasel. Okay, perfect. And we'll chat about that. Do you have any experience in that mission set at all? Well, anybody that's in the war had the experience that. <laughs> Other than being shot at. I was not a weasel pilot, but okay. we certainly flew with them as part of the... Part of that, each of the packages going yeah, up north. Sure. Yeah. So we covered you know, some of the variants. And as we go through the episode, I'll ask some uh, questions that some of our listeners have wanted to know about what it was like and yeah, sure. describing uh, your experiences yeah. for aerial refueling. Was it aerial fueling capable and what forms? Well, both forms. Okay. The answer is yes. Okay. There's two kinds of forms. There's probe and drogue yep. where you have to put the probe into the uh, refueling aircraft's basket. Yep. The other one is where the probe is inserted into an opening in the aircraft by the boomer in KC-135s. The probe and drogue was mostly the KB-50Js, B-59 with two jet engines and four bigger piston engines. Mm-hmm. And it was possible for the KC-135, I mean, who cares, to carry a basket because the Navy never got to the uh, self-contained receptacle for a probe. Okay. So they, were, they did the refuelings a lot for both services and still do. Sure. Yes, definitely. So for you, your primary exposure with tanking, was it being probed or? (laughs) No, the basket probe. We used that exclusively until the war started, I would say. All right. Because I was on nuclear alert in Okinawa with F-105, one point megaton in the belly. For instance, when I had a target in Siberia, we would have to take off from Okinawa, find the tankers, the KB-50Js, which were about 250 miles east of uh, Tokyo, because Tokyo would probably be gone. Find them, day or night, clear or cloudy, and then take the fuel from them. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, they could not go higher 
than 17,000 feet and still maintain enough indicated airspeed for us to hang on the uh, basket at the end of about a 150-foot hose. And it was tenuous at best. Sure. That gets a little squishy up there, flight yeah. controls, when you are going that slow. Yeah. And then the fact that you have to use the fuel to climb back up to your optimum altitude. Well, it kind of defeats the purpose of having to spend all that fuel just to get back up to your optimum altitude. Well, very good. So throughout your training in the F-105, what was your primary training mission set that you trained towards? Well, the mission train sets was perfected in the F-100. And I spent well over 140 hours within the 100 at Luke Field preparing for low-altitude, low-level nuclear profiles and ending up delivering, a, of course, a simulated nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. For F-105 training, it was just assumed you knew how to do that and sure. just showed you how to do it. But we, our missions were not dedicated to that. The only missions we were dedicated to in training were the basic checkout. Takeoff, landing, instrument flying, refueling, which only included the uh, prop tankers, mm-hmm. and strafe, dive bomb, and uh, air-to-air combat. Okay. We never did practice a nuke delivery, and I never felt a need to. It was pretty straightforward. Yeah, you knew the system and how to release it. but Was it a loft type of uh, uh, delivery? It, in the initial phase for the 100 and the, uh, the 105, There were two methods. You found your target, you flew over it, and initiated a one-half loop, which some people would call it an Immelman. And the top of the one-half loop, you wouldn't stay upside down. You'd do a half roll to upright, lower the nose, and accelerate away from the area. Mm -hmm. The nuclear weapon would come off somewhere near the vertical, based to go up to about 26,000, 27,000 feet, and then come down. And, of course, with all that air travel, you precise... uh, Missed distance was variable, but with that weapon, they felt it wasn't uh, criticality. If not, But here's why they changed to a level delivery of nuclear weapons. All right. The SAM, surface-to-air missiles. If you're going to expose yourself to the Soviet Union's integrated air defense system and be going up to, let's see, you drop it, you, you're, you'd probably easily end up at ten or 11,000 feet above your uh, entry altitude because you're, you're going right over the target. That's how you tell the airplane where it is. You get over the target, hit the button, that tells the airplane, okay. And then, of course, you go in the burner and you go up over the top and the bomb has come off here, get the nose down, go through the mock and exit, mowing the grass supersonically. <laughs> it sounds really fun. Well, there's one little thing about it, though. As soon as in the 105, as soon as that bomb came off, a big shield came over the canopy, and the rest of it was going to be on instruments. Okay. So then would you uh, like train following radar, or how would you navigate at that point? Well, the hood isn't going to stay up that long. It's, okay. it's basically to protect your eyes from the bomb blast. All right. For those weapons, time of flight of the weapon, I don't know. But as soon as the blast is over... Going supersonic was because the Mach Y stem of the bomb couldn't penetrate the shockwave. So it's nice if you don't kill yourself with the weapon. Yeah. Then the, the hood comes back. I see. Then, because of that problem, they developed a nuclear weapon that could be released from level flight over the target visually. And that was the Mark 61. It was not carried inboard. It was carried on the outboard station of the F-105. Essentially, it was this. Release parameters were 200 feet. We're talking day night. <laughs> 200 feet, 600 knots indicated at a, just a manual sight setting. 
it would be extremely uh, much more accurate. Had a spike in the nose, so it wouldn't hit and rumble down. Yep. It came off, and immediately a parachute came out the back. Now we're starting to get separation between the aircraft. Like a, a loot or a drogue chute kind of thing? It was not a big chute. It was a stabilizing and decelerating chute. Mm-hmm. The altitude was critical because that would assure that the spike angle of impact wasn't critical, but it would work. Okay. Once it hit, you had 37 seconds till the bomb went off. Oh, my goodness. So the escape route from that is reheat. Afterburner through the mock and maintain that till after the uh, blast. What were you limited to for speed that low altitude? 810. Okay. But the bomb and the parachute, 600. Now, later on, when I was in the R&D section of the weapons school, I had the project of going to the uh, atomic energy area west of uh, Las Vegas. Uh Bomb testing was done. And the flight was to determine... If the bomb could be released at Mach 1.1. And still and, operate? And, and, no, it would operate, but would the chute work? <laughs> oh, okay. Would it cleanly clear the airplane okay. in supersonic air, which does not bend? It only goes in straight lines, and it has to go through a transitional Mach period where the shock wave comes in from the back leaves, and it's now not on the front. So it was interesting, but it worked fine. I practiced one day, and I went in there. And I think it was eight cameras, a long run in, and it was filmed back in those days, you know, when they had unfiltered cigarettes and all kinds of stuff. (laughs) And so the film reels, if you could see my hands, they were three and a half, four feet wide. And they had to get a picture of that bomb before release and every one half to two inches after release to determine, to see to validate, certify its release potential. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It does, yeah. Basically just weapon separation yeah. from the aircraft in every phase from release and to my impact. boss, Joe Jordan, who was quite a guy, later killed in a 111B, but he said, now, John, when you say it's hot, it better come off because they're going to run those cameras, and it <laughs> takes almost three weeks to get those film canisters reloaded. Oh, my gosh. Yes, boss. <laughs> so that so means anyway, a good pre-flight then, what yeah, you're saying. So anyway, it came through. But I can tell you, we had no external tanks for this flight. Okay. And the atomic energy area was about 140 miles west of Nellis Air Base in Vegas. So I said, here's what I want you to do. You're going to need the gas. I want you to take off and land at Indian Springs, which is 26 miles away, and refuel. <laughs> then go ahead and do your mission. I want you to come back and land at Indian Springs to refuel and bring it home. Maximum gas as close to the the test as possible. Yeah, because you're putting 2,000 pounds of fuel a minute through the uh, engine when you're an afterburner. And uh, it only had 10,000 pounds when we started. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It makes sense. It's kind of a mystery, some of the aircraft, and especially the test phases of weapons and whatnot. So this is all great, kind of behind the scenes. <laughs> One of our listeners, William Wallace, had asked about ram air turbines, and if you guys use that normally, or is that emergency use only kind of ram system? Ram air turbines in the Century Series were on demand, meaning okay. it, it was, they didn't come on automatically. Okay. What happened if you engine quit, of course, all the flight controls are powered by hydraulic power. Yep. And those hydraulic powers come from pumps that are uh, accessories, bolted-on accessories to the engine. Yeah. And they go through thin lines to a hydraulic actuator that moves the control surfaces. Well, if you lose the pumps, well, then you lose that flight control system. We had two. 
and then a utility which lowered the gear, fired the gun, the very uh, basic stuff for a mechanical yeah. for things like that. So the ram air turbine would come out, and its job was to provide enough hydraulic pressure, take the place of the pump, so that the airplane could be returned to the base and landed. A little problem with that in combat. Those hydraulic pumps were mounted pretty close together. And then the hydraulic lines, very small outside diameter lines, mm-hmm. they joined and they went together to the hydraulic actuators. This seems like you're telling me that this is a poor design. You, no, it probably isn't for peacetime. Okay. Although on a Lockheed 1011 one day, an engine went off in the back end and it got all four hydraulic systems. That's not ideal. No. But my point is... You had to have hydraulic flight controls, high-powered flight controls, irreversible, meaning if they were just cables or push rods, as soon as you, you started getting in the translation Mach range from about, depending on the airfoil, 0.8 to 1.05, and the aileron to take a ride, it's gone. Yeah, It was irreversible. So yeah. the rudder, the elevator, we didn't have elevators. We had slab and so in any event, uh, later on, the A-7 had three flight control systems. No two hydraulic lines went together. And when they finally got together, they went into a ceramic armor-encased actuator. A little bit of a reinforced oh. uh, structure to oh. prevent damage, oh, yeah. at least re- restrict the amount of damage. Oh, yeah. And the cockpit was protected by ceramic armor. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. throughout time, we've seen improvements in sure. aircraft design and whatnot, and, and that seems like that's the case there as well. Yeah. For... Um, Mission sets, you guys carried AIM-9s? Is that? I don't know what a mission set means. Uh, sorry, air-to-air, air-to-ground, that kind of thing. What was your air-to-air capability? 1,028 rounds of 20 millimeter. Okay. We had the ability to carry four heaters, two on each wing. Uh-huh. We had bigger fish to fry Okay. for those. For would, those. If you had loaded those up, would that have taken bombs off well, the aircraft? Oh, yeah, and increased the drag tremendously. Okay. Let me tell you how much drag that was. That airplane would go Mach 2. Put those four heaters on there. Horrible drag. 1.15. That's definitely a restriction. We do not want to go to the Indianapolis race and try to do the race with the brakes on. <laughs> it's a great analogy. Mm. I'm going to tell Jello about that one. So being then that your primary air-to-air employment, or in this case, probably more so defensive capability, self-protection was the gun. We didn't need self-protection because... The max speed of a MiG-21 indicated was 595. There's MiG-17s, no maybe 550. We can do 810. Just run away, bravely. I would say go away and come back when they're not looking. Check and extend. By the end of 1966, the 105s had 28.5 gun kills on MiGs, mm-hmm. and the Navy had 27. <laughs> it's not a competition, though. It's not a No, I'm just saying that we got the man. <laughs> That's right, you did. Yeah. That's right, you did. What was your training program for that air-to-air employment, shooting the gun and stuff? Well, most of the air-to-air combat training I had was in F-100s at Luke Field, clean airplanes. Right. A lot of guys that have been aces and done it. There were 32 missions at Nellis. But air-to-air maneuvering, air-to-air combat, Sure. essentially, and just take a deep breath here, it's been about the same since uh, SPADs and the Newports. As it is now, you've got to figure out some way to get behind them and shoot the gun and kill them. Yeah. Or if you are attacked by them, you're going to have to learn how to maneuver so that they do not gain an advantage. And there's not much difference. Yes, I know. Wing loading and 
The bottom line is, of course, nobody here knows what John Boyd's energy maneuverability theory is, but it goes something like this. Get as fast as you can and keep going fast. Don't slow down unless you absolutely need to. For instance, supersonic airfoils were designed to be excellent supersonic flight. Yes. They don't work very well below the Mach. That's why we're going 180 knots on final. Yeah. With flaps. Subsonic airfoils are great below the Mach, like the A7. They don't do well supersonically. 90% of the wars we fought were below the Mach. Yeah. So, for instance, the 105 was an 8.67G airplane, operational, not to break after that. Okay. To get it to 8.67 mocks, you had to be indicating 480 knots or more. And if you start trying to get high G less than that, angle of attack is high, induced drag is enormous, mm-hmm. you're just going to slow down. So there better be a compelling reason to get much slower than that. For sure. Listen, with two external fuel tanks and eight 800-pound bombs, we could indicate 465 down at 5,000 feet, not full power, not full burner, just maximum tailpipe temperature. It's impressive. I can just remember seeing a MiG-20, a couple of MiG-21s roll in. Somebody called them up as we were trained to do. Well, if we jettison the bombs, they win. Yeah, exactly. So we just pushed it up to full mill. Then they had a 595 max speed. We were already doing 545. They roll out two or three miles behind you. You ever try to think how long that would take to close? It would be a long time. And yeah. a heat-seeking missile, that speed and that kind of thick air, they've got to go out about 3,000 feet because they shouldn't explode and then destroy the airplane that fired them. But yet they've got to go far enough after that to guide and they had two or 300 feet to work in. And if you turned on them, well, then nothing. Yeah. So we didn't worry too much about that. Yes, there was a time there when when the SAMs came up, which was exactly July 25th of 1965. I was airborne when that happened. Not in that vicinity. I just heard four F-4s yelling on guard that had been hit by a missile. But up to that time, we would come in at seventeen or 18,000 feet. Well, above the small arms fire. Yeah. You know, the guys with pearl handle 22s couldn't shoot at you. And, <laughs> you know, and their probability of hit was fairly low. Now, yeah. once that nose went down in the dive bombing arena, said so they were kind of clever. They knew where we were going. Yeah. I mean, they had Haiphong in Hanoi. Haiphong is the main port to South uh, North Vietnam, and Hanoi is the capital. Well, that's where the guns went. And I mean, the Soviets bring it, and they had about and I'm being conservative here, within rings of automatic weapons of all calibers from 85 millimeter down to 14.5 rapid fire weapons, and even below that, machine gun type stuff, Yeah, they could create a blizzard of lead, and there's not much need to aim. Yeah, so it's a wall of bullets. But before the SAMs came up, we're going at 18,000 feet, and I'd say 20%, 30% of that en route was... Once you got within 80 miles of the city, it was a non-event. But once you put your nose down, you had to deal with it. Yeah. Well, so then transitioning to the primary bread and butter, the air-to-ground mission yeah. that you guys held. Yeah. So you've obviously talked to the, the nuclear mission, and then you had a conventional weapon mission. What would you guys normally carry for bombs? Now you're talking in Vietnam. Yes, sir. Well, there were no nuclear weapons there. Correct, yeah. So, so not, yes. So what we had was uh, first called flu nuclear at that 
Mark 28 nuclear weapon was in the bomb bay. Okay. We took that out, put gas tank there. So we carried iron bombs. We had sometimes rocket pods on the wing. They look wonderful when you see them on war movies, but they're, just, <laughs> they're not very accurate and you got to get too close. And we had the gun. Okay. And we carried basically two types of iron bombs. M117, who cares about the number? When it says M, that means it, the Army builds it. Okay. Not for their airplanes, but their job. Yeah. It's an 800-pounder. They call it a 750. But all up, it weighs 800 pounds, and about half of it is uh, tritonol, TNT, and half of it is case strength. You know, okay. you, you can't put it in an eggshell and expect it. The bomb has to build up a certain pressure before it goes off yes. to create just like firecrackers. Yeah. What I liked, though, was the Mark 82 500-pounders, mm-hmm. very low drag. Oh, now we go faster, don't have to use as much fuel. Sure. Lighter. It kind of helped with the takeoff rolls we were facing. <laughs> and uh, just a, a lot nicer weapon to use. Okay. And it had a scalded case on the inside like you'd see a hand grenade on the outside. Correct. So when it went off. It did some damage. Definitely. And the fusing for those things is longer than we have to talk about today. But you either want to be able to have it go off when it hits the ground, mm-hmm. or do some penetration and go off like inside a building or the bowels of a ship. Yes. Like the Kaga at Midway. Yes. And then you get some good results. Absolutely. And so we did that with function delays in the fuse. All right. And then the daisy cutter. Of, uh, oh, I never flew. That, you never flew those kind of things. I, I think we did, but the daisy cutter was to make the bomb go off in midair, maybe sure. 12, 14 feet above the ground for lightly armored targets, uh, anti aircraft sites, uh, airplanes, trucks, people. Sure. So the daisy cutters, but uh, I know we flew some. I may have had some sometime, but that was not the main menu. Yeah. Now, it may have been, I'm talking North Vietnam and Laos. South Vietnam, they may, but what they used in South Vietnam was a high drag Mark 82. When they released, the fins came off. Yes. Then that gave bomb separation, bomb munition separation. Mm -hmm. You do not want one of these things going off when you're in the blast envelope. Correct. Okay. For employment, did you guys use train falling radar? No, as, at all. Crap. No, <laughs> that stuff was designed for the nuclear profile. Where okay. When you coasted into the Soviet Union or you came within the radar envelope, the 105 had terrain avoidance and terrain following radar. It was a marketing deal. I, I mean, I wouldn't have trusted my life to that at Luke when we learned to do dead reckoning, time, distance. Letting down, and we did it under the bag. I mean, we're in the back seat, showing we could do this. Yeah, come let down to eight hundred to a thousand feet between mountain ridges. Pull off the bag, find ourselves, and go to the target. Yeah, the one hundred and five. I suppose I'd turn it on, but the great thing about the radar they had there—well, forget the word great—but <laughs> it was a good radar. Sure, for ground mapping. For instance, ground water contrast is perfect. Yes. Radar doesn't reflect anything ground does. So we had a Doppler navigator, and I had ground map radar. Oh, you could see that. We had a range and an azimuth cursor. We could put that juncture on a point going coasting into the the Soviet Union. Yeah. I knew exactly what those coordinates were. Put that on there and hit update. Bingo. Now the Doppler navigator is up and on. And that would update your aircraft's uh, navigation navigation system? system. Okay. And we had a ground speed indicator on the airplane. 
First time you get to go Mach 2, there are lots of numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Just ratcheting up and up. That's great. One of the questions asked about the comparison of your TFR to the F-111s. Could you make that comparison? It's a non-event. No. Okay. Non-event had an autopilot. And of course, the first six we flew, took over there. Two of them went away one night and never came back. And it was two years later that uh, they finally kind of work. Yeah. Okay. I see. Yeah. We already covered the nuclear profiles that you attempted in training and, and whatnot. Obviously, you didn't fly any of those necessarily in combat, but... Uh, well, if we were, you and I wouldn't be here that's, to talk yeah, about Yeah, exactly. Right. For kind of touching on the wild weasel mission and the suppression mm-hmm. of any air defenses, mm-hmm. what was your experience with that in your time flying? Well, it's kind of a neat question for me because I was at Karat when the first weasel aircraft came over. All right. There were six F-100s and it was a Let's do the timelines. The first uh, missile attack in the world mm-hmm. on aircraft was July 25th of 1965. Mm-hmm. And then the first attack on a Soviet-designed SAM site system was July 27th of 1965. <laughs> and they, of course, painted telephone poles white, put fins on them, made sure we got pictures of them, yeah. and then took every gun they had. Not true, but... Enough to seem like every gun they had and aligned yeah. all the approach corridors, you know. There was a river that pointed right to it. We you know, put some guns there. Yeah. And so we went after them, horribly planned. Not at the squadron level, not at the wing level, but, you know, those people that down at headquarters, they sit and they shout. The ones with the buildings that have no windows and... Yeah, well, yeah. We talk about things they know very little about. <laughs> exactly right. But you looked at that and you think, well, Christ, you know, we're going to... You know, we lost six airplanes in a minute and 45 seconds that's terrible six airplanes with bullets which caused their crash so look if you're going after a target and you're coming in low level then everybody en route and take out a pearl handle 22 an ak-47 a shotgun or the zsus that could put out about three thousand rounds a minute and just fill the air with lead yeah you don't have to do that let's not go there you might (laughs) let's go away from that space makes good stories but not for longevity yeah so you're talking about the experience okay so now in december of 65 remember the timeline there were two or three other sam missions attempted but we found a lot easier just to avoid them and fly around of course we weren't allowed to go attack sam sites until they were operational we weren't allowed to attack their airfields until they started being a nuisance. Sure. You know, we didn't want to upset the Chinese or the Soviets. Who'd want to do that? <laughs> Just because we were at war with them. Yeah. And to put a sharper point on that pencil, look, this was a war between the United States and the Soviet Union and China. They got divorced in 56 and had their own program, but the supply lines came from Soviet Union through China down the Northeast and Northwest Railroad or on boats that went into Haiphong Harbor, which we weren't allowed to touch until late in the war. Sure. The harbor. We did some good work along those railroad lines that weren't expressly forbidden. But <laughs> anyway. There's a kind of interpolation. So the 100 show up. Now they have a wet wing. Mm-hmm. 105 has a solid wing. Yeah. No gas in the 105 wing. Yep. We're just talking about potential vulnerable area. And the 100 is at least 150 knots, I mean, operationally slower and maybe technically 200 knots slower. And But they had some radar homing and warning gear, and they had the first of our anti-radiation missiles. It was called a Shrike. Yep. Let's just say that it had limited range and limited capability, but if 
things were lined up properly, it was a beam rider. Didn't go after the missile launchers that went after the sites. Mm-hmm. There's three trucks that are after each SAM missile site. Yep. That's where they know your range, your altitude, and your bearing. Different operators for each of those. One guy's in charge of left, right, and the guy's in charge of up, down, and one other guy's in charge of range. Mm-hmm. And they have to cooperate. It's not easy. Yeah, sure. But while they're doing that, they're transmitting. Mm-hmm. These things, little beams come out, you know. Yeah. They have a source. The AGM-45, if it were lined up properly, and they got the back seat in the F-100s had an electronic warfare officer called an EWO. Yeah. And he thinks, when he knows this, the missile was... <laughs> Sniffing the correct. That's right. And they would fire it. There's a great story written after the war. Oh, the good stories come out after the war. <laughs> and, the, and firings first started. You couldn't say this out loud back then, but of course there were Soviets at the missile sites. Yeah. They're kind of a demanding sort of people. And yeah, you know, that kind of, weren't, you know, no adjectives, no adverbs. Yes. Do it. And the guy said, missile coming. Yeah. 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 Missile coming. <laughs> oh, t- no. He said, let me see. He opened the door. and the, <laughs> Right through the door. Right through the door. <laughs> took them all out the other side. <laughs> so anyway, the 100s didn't last. I mean, they were up there. They were trying hard. It was a good start, but not the right I mean, platform they, for they it. They were hit, and the planes were going down. Gary Willard, good man. Lieutenant Colonel was leading it. And so then they began to modify the F-105F, the family model. Called it a family model because it had one too many seats in it. <laughs> but they put the electronic warfare officer in the back of that, and it started coming up with precision and more precision instruments to know where they were. And this became a specialized group of aircraft within the 105 community, and were called the wild weasels. And you know, weasels, hunters, and all that stuff. Yeah. They would say, well, what are you doing today? We're going hunting. <laughs> <laughs> they would generally be used to precede the strike force to the target and handle Robbie, who got four missile sites in one day, one time. He was about 46, grandfather. <laughs> he said, we were to handle those sites, and then on the way out, we were to handle those that would get our guys from the rear. That's just basically... First in, last out kind of concept, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. Yep. The 105s were uh, effective. Then they came up with a missile, which was a standard arm, much mm-hmm. bigger. And they would detect a missile site. I'll just have to use general terms. But if the missile site wasn't on the nose, but they detected it off to the side, and they get that missile tuned up and locked on, they could fire it, and it would come around and get it. The only defense they had was to turn off the missile site. Yeah. It wasn't a complete defense because at a certain point into the missile's trajectory, since that missile site couldn't move, yeah, it knew where it was. I see. But, All right. But it wasn't as exact as if it rode the beam into their men's room. Yes. <laughs> if you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. 
That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. I know for my time flying Block 50s and, and F-16s, mm-hmm. that was our job, my squadron, Misawa. It um, still is, by the way. The friend I've told you about, Misawa, their yep. primary mission is Wild Weasel. Exactly, yeah. And the technology, you know, is... Over time, like we said, with aircraft, same with weapons technology. And so uh, is and it with the SAM sites. <laughs> it's, you know, it's one of those things. They do something and we adjust and we do something and they adjust and it just, you know, it's a chess game and it never seems to end. But yeah. like you said, for normal uh, non-nuclear missions, you guys had an internal. We didn't have uh, anything, but you can just leave the word nuclear well, out of this. For, for when our you, missions. Yeah. Well, but for that bay, the internal bay, yeah, sure. that was just a fuel tank. Yeah, 2,860 pounds. Okay. You covered rockets. You guys probably never did any leaflet missions or anything like that, I'm assuming. Our leaflets were mostly high-explosive incendiary tips to the 20-millimeter. More metallic. All right, good. We thought it would send a a clearer message. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, good. You know, they did one time, and there were these things. We finally came up with pretty neat weapon, cluster bomb units. It looked like it was about an 800-pound bomb, but it would separate. Yeah. And things about the size of baseballs would come out. And when it hit the ground, essentially, they were full of ball bearings that had uh, hypersonic velocities. And, of course, this discouraged at flap sites a lot, flak sites and people. <laughs> so now, then, for flak suppression, we would try to come in and release these bomblets. And uh, what you talked about, did we have any other weapons? And, and I talked about iron bombs and rockets. Yes. This was an important step because you didn't have to get down and run the gauntlet of high rates of fire to finally get to a place where you could drop napalm after they get 15 or 20 minutes of shooting shooting at you you. like the gauntlet you know you've been through them in initiation services yeah okay so we kind of like that uh different approach yeah it's a smarter way to do business Mm -hmm. i think well very good now during your time did you guys have any exchange officers from other countries we did not no we had british Royal Air Force officers at Nellis as 105 instructors. Okay. Jock Heron, Bugs Blundell. Oh, they were just, oh, they'd send these guys to war. They didn't get to go. They trained their whole lives for that kind of thing and then well, sit on the sidelines, essentially. And then watch the people they train not come back. Yeah. You see, I still maintain good contact with Jock Heron, and I don't know if he misses it or thinks about it anymore, but his email is thudjock at... Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I noticed uh, your license plate says F-105. Damn straight. <laughs> Damn straight. I was yeah. very jealous. That must have been a hard one to get, I would assume. No, you can just, you know, you get a, what do they call them, vanity plates. That's right. You know, we're That's all right. in love with ourselves in fighter business. <laughs> uh, somebody's got to like you. That's right. That's right. What about other countries? Did anybody else have the F-105 that you know of and Never. flew it? No, just No the US other only. country. And we weren't going to sell it to them. By the time that maybe could have happened... The production line had stopped yeah. during a war. There's a lot, of, <sighs> a lot of interesting questions are being raised today, well, no, I think. These I are think just <laughs> Man, well, this is obviously a tough subject, and I can hear the emotion in your voice yeah. for the loss rates and, and whatnot. The F-105 itself had, as an aircraft, a pretty high loss rate due to accidents in its early infancy. It did. I don't know the exact number, but I know this. Of the 600... And oh nine, yeah. <laughs> D models built. The time the war started, there were four hundred and ninety-five Ds extant. Okay, so we lost over six, over a hundred and some. Yeah. Okay. And then when the war started, and we were just working around in Laos, we our loss rates were they weren't holy <laughs> loss rates. Yeah. 
I know the first 105 shot down over there had my name on the canopy rail. Oh, man. Number 296. Yeah. Al Vollmer was in it, and they were up in northern Laos trying to help General Vang Pao. Four factions in Laos, and his was the only good one. And uh, anyway, he was rescued and then shot down again later trying to firing a bullpup missile, another idea whose time is should never have gone any further than that. <laughs> you have to maintain straight and level flight and guide the thing in. Well, yeah. gosh, who would have think that somebody might want to shoot you down? You know, He was only in the hospital a year and a half in traction. So. Oh, my gosh. Throughout your time yeah. within the conflict, you know, you've got over 200 combat sorties. First, how much time would that have encompassed, like from what year to year? Well, I can tell you exactly. From the last week in December of 1964 till June of 1973. Okay. I flew combat missions over there. Just relax. going to seem self-serving. Well, maybe it is, <laughs> but to answer your question. Yeah. And parts of, no, let's emphasize parts of. Sure. Sometimes bigger parts than others, but still. Parts of 64, 65, 66, 68, 69, 72, and 73. So, Breaks of time in between. Yeah, well, the, the, I was in the, times. after 66, I was in the weapons school. Okay. The times in 68 and 69, I was over there for the three-month tour. In addition to four trips I made over there, I was also project officer on some more modern fuses. Okay. I won't go into detail, but the, what we were using were World War II fuses that had areas that could be tuned up. Sure. And I go to every single fighter base in Southeast Asia, Benwal, Cameron Bay, Phuket, Tuiwa, Uban, Udorn, Karat, and Takli. And I'd occasionally fly in the backseat of a Hun or try to not get too close to the F-4, but, and then when I'd go to a thud base, I'd fly. That sounds very interesting when it comes to the diversity of things you got to see. Well, I got to see the whole war. Yeah. And when I was over there in the role of the F uh, Fighter Weapons School, not advisor, just it worked out. Yeah. I flew in every single 105 squadron that ever flew in the war, all but three. There were three squadrons down there that I didn't fly in before I went to the weapons school. But and in my wing, the 18th wing, we had three squadrons. And I had missions, not many, but 4-4 four, four squadron. And, you know, somebody short, you know, with six, seven squadron, but mm-hmm. primarily with 12 squadron. Okay. And then I came back the summer again in 12 squadron. And then I went back. And when you go back, you know, you're not going to Hawaii for vacation. You're going back down on the nuclear weapons pad and be ready for the bell to ring. And so you just sit alert, basically. Sit alert. I'm not saying there weren't days off. Don't get me wrong. It, but it's not your typical R&R. It, at Karat, we got three days a month to go to Bangkok. Woo. <laughs> and then on the early days there weren't enough americans down to screw up the town they were just complaining about the japanese that were picky picky <laughs> shoppers you know but anyway moving on but and then we went over in october of uh, 72 in the a7s when the paris peace talks stalled and we finally had some people with guts in the government and kissinger had been over talking to mao at uh, cho and lai who was mao Zedong's position Henry Kissinger was basically to Nixon what Chow Wen Lai was to Mao. And so Nixon, go over there and see what these, tell them, we're going to leave, but we're not running. And so they made a discussion, came to an agreement. And about that time, we didn't have much trouble, more trouble with the Chinese. Yeah. 
And in linebacker two, on the third night, could have been the fourth night, one of the sticks of B-52s exited through southern China, and China didn't react. Now, you know, maybe these people up in North Vietnam, they're pretty sharp in some ways, but they looked at that and they said, rut row. Yeah. Anyway. That's the problem. So my point there is we went back over there after the Paris peace talks stalled, and that's when Nixon said, enough. I want to make sure there's over 100 B-52s between Anderson, which is in Guam, Utapau, which is in southern Thailand, about 80 miles, 70 miles south-southeast of Bangkok. Mm-hmm. Well, but now Tak Lee's been abandoned. We were just down there to flying out of Karat. A wing of A-7s from Myrtle Beach were tasked to go over there. But they were undermanned for combat operations. Now, what's that mean in English? Peacetime manning is 1.25 pilots per squadron. Yeah, I know. It's hard to get a half a guy in the squadron. <laughs> but when you divide the numbers, that's what it comes out. <laughs> Combat's 1.36. There was a wing of A-7s and Davis Mountain in Tucson. I was okay. flight commander in 354 squadron. I'd been on the A-7D operational test team for two years. All right. And those were the years that I call a phony war. There wasn't much happening in North Vietnam in 70 and 71. It was kind of like France after uh, Germany attacked Poland. You know, mm-hmm. there was this, the phony war. So anyway, they were looking for volunteers from Tucson. I'd been with that squadron about four months. I was fresh from that A-7 test. I had almost 1,000 hours in it at the time. These were good young men. I'm lucky to get to be a flight commander with them. So I volunteered the flight to go. <laughs> and I went down and talked to Fred Hefner, who was the wing commander. And I said, look, I haven't been just training these guys to go to the gunnery range, come back and go to the bar. Yeah, we're here to do a job. Let's do yeah, it. No, Let's go do it. We, we did a lot of training. Yeah. How was your formation when you're in a missile, air-to-air missile environment, guns environment? What do you do if attacked? And I had some help from Jim Alder, one of the greatest warriors that ever flew, he happened to be at Luke at the time in the 104 program. I'd flown with him in 68 out of Tockley. And I said, Jim, I told him what I was trying to do. He was shot down in the Ping Pong River during the Korean War, mm-hmm. the Pong Yang River, right outside the city. Went through the ice. Oh. Radio operator, only one that survived. Goes to a prison camp. And there were airmen at the prison camp. All right. He was the only enlisted. Listed. Geneva Convention said officers don't have to work enlisted do. Yeah. He would take the clothes in the winter down to the river under the guard that went with him. He'd have nothing on, bare feet, and a towel. He'd take the big hammer and chuck a hole in the ice and stand at it and slowly just look at the guard and do the clothes. Fold. And when he got back in the prison camp, Damn, they're dead, and they have to warm him with their bodies. Yeah. I didn't know this about him. He never said it. I know this is a sidebar, but I was at uh, the Navy base in San Francisco. Good place to go, and we could take 105s out on the weekend, uh, get our instrument training. So I went to the visiting officer quarters. But every room in the visiting officer quarters and the Navy visiting officer quarters has a— an attendant, Filipino. They use them on the ships. Yes. And I sit in a flight suit, in a flight suit, and a guy down there about three, that was a Navy commander, a lieutenant colonel. Yeah. Okay. 
So I had a drink and he had a drink and I had the 105 patch on. He said, you don't happen to know Jim Alder, do you? I said, I sure do. <laughs> he said, I was in prison camp with him. Oh, wow. He told me the story. So Jim did such good work that the officers in that camp said, get this guy to pilot training. You remember you had to have two years of college and be a cadet? Yeah. That was waived. Finished first. Picked F-84s. Luke Field. Those, the 84s were the gun school airplane before the 100 was. Yeah. So now he's down there to be a student. Sure. Know, and then go to, in those days, the 84 was more or less the NATO airplane in Europe. So he finishes first and he gets to stay there as an instructor. Oh, wow. About this time, Eric Hartman, the world's leading ace, has been released from the Soviet prison system. He's now back in Luftwaffe. He's now going to get current in the main plane that they use for fighters there, the F-84. All right. He comes to Luke. He's not getting along too well with the Americans. I think maybe a language, something. Sure. He was a gentleman. So they said, let's put him with Jim Alder. Oh, they both got along because they hated the Soviets. (laughs) And it was just... uh, And so Jim says, yeah... I'm willing to help since I got a test top tomorrow on the 104 and I can go about when I want to. So I said, okay, we're going to be coming off the range down here near Gila Bend. Yep. And we're on this frequency and we're going to go this route back. I want those guys to see what a MiG-21 would look like coming through the formation. Yeah. Because the A-7 wasn't as fast. We could maintain 530, 540. Uh-huh. Got it. So we came off and I heard this click, click. And I said, click, <laughs> click. And I briefed these guys, look, we're going to come back defense guns, right out of that book, so that the wingman, one, three, two, four. So two and four can check six. I see. And I said, you will check six. (laughs) And I emphasize this so much. Yeah. Jim said, four's gone. (laughs) He said, two's gone. Right through the middle. Then we landed, and I said, well, gentlemen... Bright and early tomorrow, you go out and replace who's ever on mobile control, and you replace him at 1 o'clock and stay till the flying's over. Oh, no. And maybe you'll learn to look around. Oh. Now, that was summer of 72. All right. So these are the guys that I said, the wing commander said, it's against my judgment. You're taking a whole flight away from one of our squadrons. I said, yeah, so I thought I'd better tell you I volunteered him before I told the squadron. <laughs> so we went over there. Oh, I okay, now it's linebacker two. For your audience, I don't know how to express linebacker two, but those B-52s I mentioned that came over to Anderson and Utapau yeah. on the night of 11 December 1972, all of them went to Hanoi and Haiphong. Each one of them had over 125 hundred-pound bombs. Goodness. And we went there the next day, and we flew all the 11 days of Christmas. Yep. So it was the third or fourth day from the end, and we were uh, some target in downtown Hanoi, but I got his flight of four. And we went, I know this isn't about the thud. It, uh, it wasn't Trevor's fault that it got here, by the way. But I think it has to do with the war itself and how it progressed, sure. so if you'll allow me. The A-7, she was the ugly duckling, you know, never. But that little airplane, we didn't lose one of them. And it had a, a smart airplane dumb bomb system. That I spent two years with five other pilots proving it had a 10 mil bombing accuracy. 
Yeah, it was very precise. The mill is one foot in a thousand. The bomb range, and it had an IBM computer, an inertial platform. It knew the aircraft's motion. It had the ballistics of every weapon in the airport. You could drop it from 8,000 feet with 40 knots on the side. We don't care. Yep. So we're up there, and we're coming out. And it was a big day. The B-52s had had a hell of a night. And coming out to the southwest, and I remember, I guess, 75, 7,800 feet. You know, put yourself back with Alder and, you know, the gunner ran down there. Yeah. Four calls. Bogey. That means he didn't know which one it was. Blue bogey, 21. Red bogey, 17. Bogey. Left. Left, 730. 20 degrees high. Mile and a half. That's how you call a bogey. No, we got a bogey. Got it. I said, lead's padlocked. Well, they knew right away. The second element, don't follow me. You get into another position uh-huh. where we can alternate. So this is going to be... And the guy, what, he'd just coming in. So he was here. I went down, up, around, and I'm at the low six. And the briefing was, you will be the only Allied aircraft up there. It certainly wasn't an F-4 because smoke wasn't coming out of the tailpipe. <laughs> they all smoke black Absolutely smoke. Absolutely. Yep. And this airplane was gray. I had the heater on. I was going to shoot that thing, but then... I was going to go for the gun. <laughs> and remember the dart story? Yes. They got really close. Yeah. Not that close. The Marines were supposed to be on the border between Laos and North Vietnam. Yeah. Bar cap, barrier cap. Sure. And we're supposed to be over there. Yeah. At Jarhead. <laughs> <sighs> I said, safe them up. And I'm right. <laughs> right underneath them. <laughs> anyway. But see, you were so close, you could tell. That's why they got all the markings on them, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there were no markings, of course. You can't see from six. But I could see Marines, Air Force, didn't smoke. They had engines that Different had enters. a leaner mixture. Yeah. No, seriously, they didn't smoke in mill power. Wow. Lucky them. Maybe should, everybody else should have taken a cue. Sure. Anyway, I'm sorry. You can cut <laughs> oh, not at all. Oh, not at all. Out. No, that's good stuff. We'll but, probably leave that in there. I think any story that anybody can hear is good stories. And, and honestly, mm-hmm. it shows the progression of the technology, I think, is kind of the big theme here. Because obviously, the F-105, while an awesome airplane and while great for its time and its mission, it wasn't necessarily specifically designed to do what it was being asked to do in Vietnam. Very few airplanes and, are. The F-4 was designed for one purpose, to sit on the deck of a Navy ship on the cat. You know, they always want to, to protect. Yeah. But one that was there before, the F-3H by McDonnell Douglas, one guy, and the, the cartoon is the crew chief. They always have a wire to a headset. Yeah. He said, he's got his head up the tailpipe and says, looks okay in mill, sir. Why don't we try it in burner? <laughs> you know? And so then, you know, the daytime, they always had the F-8 Crusader, great eight airplane. If yes. the guns had worked, it would have been better. No night capability. I yeah. mean, limited. Tended, but yeah. here's an F-4. It's got a radar operator in the backseat, good radar set. There's no hills to hide behind in the ocean. It's true. Now they've got the destroyers, okay, targets coming in, give them a little vector, okay. But they could pick those things up 40, 50 miles straight ahead. Yeah. They had a missile you could shoot them in the face with, not a heat seeker, a beam rider. Yeah. Great. So we bought them in the Air Force because the 105 was out of production and we yeah. were losing them. Yep. And we put our guys that were trained, take off, get in the weather, and shoot down bombers. Mm-hmm. They never done air-to-ground bomb, air-to-ground. So they go a quick checkout course in the F-4. 
which used more gas than the 105 ever thought about. I always thought the petroleum industry ought to kind of push the production. Into <laughs> sure. And it just wasn't there. Yeah. Eventually, they got a few guys, Everett Raspberry and some of them in Olds, you know, knew how to fly fighters, but they could hardly hit the earth on a clear day with a bomb. It was just yeah. sad, and it wasn't their fault. Oh, yeah. I think there's a lot of lessons learned from this conflict that... That would have been long forgotten. That... And the Air Force. Obviously, you know, those that uh, either never learned it or, or have forgotten history are doomed to repeat it. I think yeah. we're seeing that in some things, uh, potentially yeah. these days. But Sure. Well, transitioning, you know, towards the uh, the latter part of our interview here, what if anything would make the F one hundred and five famous beyond its combat uh, history? Has there been any movies or anything that you know of? No, I don't think so either. I don't I'd... think so. Yes. Oh, here we yes, go. Yes, but it's not a theater movie. It's a good video, and it's still readily available. Called "There Is a Way." Okay, that was All rather right. famous. Okay, that was. Uh, I can tell you. Maybe to back up that it had a chance to have some notoriety. It was nominated <laughs> for the uh, Oscars in 1967 okay. as one of the best seven sh- short subjects. I don't know exactly the name, but it didn't win. But was it a, like a training film or something no, of that nature? I don't know. It wasn't a no? training film. It was all done at Karat. Oh, wow. There were no actors in it. Okay. It just our men, the crew okay. chiefs, the pilots. The Wing Commanders. That's great. You've never seen that? I don't think I've ever seen it. I've got it listed here as one of the things that people could go check out. It says it's here on YouTube. But, you want to check it uh, out. But well, I do. I, mean I clearly it. need no, to check I mean, it out. You go to your room now. You got, just go on Google. Ask. There is a way. Yeah. And then the link should show up. I guess it's a lot better for those that were there. And they said, well, finally, somebody's telling the truth. It wasn't a political movie. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fair. Sir, this has been an absolute blast. I'm going to uh, start wrapping this up. We've been going for a little bit over an hour here, and I want to be definitely respectful of your time. Well, my uh, time's your time. Well, There's no wrong way to do the right thing. That's very true. What haven't we talked about with the F-105? Is there anything else you'd want to make sure the listeners are aware of? For what it was designed for, the low-altitude, high-speed nuclear weapon carrier, Sissa Nuclear, I can't imagine anything better. It was the finest aircraft jet airplane I've ever flown for control harmony, feel, confidence. Flying 100, it was our first shot at a supersonic airfoil. And it felt to me like, and by the time I went to pilot training, I had about 1,000 hours. I'd been a flight instructor and a charter guy and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, that Luscom you see over there, that wasn't the Luscom, but that uh, October of 58, yeah, it's when I first soloed in one of those things. I guess I had another one just to have it around. But <laughs> the 100 was kind of like standing on a two-by-eight on top of a bowling ball on a waterbed. I mean, it was, <laughs> and listen, there's a lot of great 100 drivers. I checked my Form 5, and I made about 200 hours in a 100. I remember the first time I flew on the single-seater, the C-model, no training-edge flap. I'm on final, and this just seems to be okay, and... I'd come from the T-33, 120-knot airplane. It's a big transition. So I just raise the nose. And you're at that speed, and you raise the nose, it damn near doubles the rate of descent. So you got to do one, two. You got to get the throttle in and then raise it. And I yeah. think I landed. You know, Luke Field is just one big paved black area. You can I've been there on that for oh, yeah. the audience. Absolutely. And they paint the runways on them. Okay, yep. And so I hit about 1,000 feet short of the overrun. <laughs> And bounced, but I had good heading, kept the wings level, and touched down about 500 feet past mobile. <laughs> I was, I mean, I was only in a class of 
We started off with eight. You know, and one guy died three weeks later and landed on base leg in the skip bomb pattern. But oh no, they're going to send me to Harlingen and make me a navigator. <laughs> and this is the mark of these men there. Nobody said a word. I was on the morning flight. And I came in and I kept waiting for come in the back room. My instructor was Big D, Daryl Simmons, All-American, Texas A&M, big guy. Later in an F-4 he didn't want to go to. They had a gun pod underneath. Uh-huh. Killed two MiG-17s with guns without a gun sight. They didn't have an air-to-air sight in a turning engagement. Oh, man. So anyway, I got back in there, and I was getting ready to leave to go to the academics. And Big D said, Marcy, come here a minute. He had a little piece of paper. He said, that's the tail number of an airplane you're going to fly this afternoon. You can forget about academics. For Christ's sakes, at least get her butt to the runway before you touch down. <laughs> and then I knew I was among men. You know what I mean? That's they, were, great. they weren't waiting to get rid of you. They were trying to keep you alive. And I think that's so the right that's, way to do it. That's, my that's fantastic. Okay. Then uh-huh. when I went to fly the 105 the first time. There were no sedans. Okay. All single-seater. So they, we went to a ground school, which was very good. But again, a lot of these people have been around a long time. Crew chiefs kind of knew who was coming. So the first thing to do, one day you got put your G-suit on, your helmet, you got in the airplane, did the pre-flight, crew chief worked with you, got it started, went out, turned around, came back, and parked it. And I hadn't gone 100 feet, Trevor, and I realized this airplane was going to be fine. It felt like taxiing a Cadillac, driving a Cadillac. I said, I knew at that instant it was going to be just fine. And that was the one for you. Going into pilot training, did you have a favorite aircraft or one that you wanted to fly? I think the answer to that is probably not. My uncle was a flyer in World War II, so I mean, I, you know, he went in before the war started in Army Air Force. And so, you know, I've been around Kansas City, and I just loved those constellations and how beautiful they looked. And then I got to be an instructor, and I'm down there at that field where yeah. my son flies now, MKC. And then one day at pilot training, about two months before we were supposed to graduate, two 105s landed. <laughs> right before you graduate, they have representatives from the fighter command and the bomber command and the interceptor command and yeah. the transport command. And they all come in and give great briefings on how you should come, what they're trying to do. They're yeah, trying to get the recruit, basically. These airplanes were silver. They didn't come down initially. I mean, they came over the field at Knott Field in the middle, about 200 feet from the tower. <laughs> Burners on, pulled up, came around, whapped the flight line. Wow. <laughs> came around, pitched, landed, taxied back. They went right up in front of base ops. Nobody waved men, gone one away for that. And they're coming in, in trail. And then they turned so that they're now side by side and got up right in front of base ops, put the brakes on a little, bounced the nose, and waited for somebody to shut them down. And, of course, Transcend Alert had never seen anything like this. They just shut them down. Just shut them down. And by that time, the base commander was uh-huh. there. There weren't very many colonels on those training bases. Sure. He came down, nice guy. So by then, they got some jocks under the wheel. And the time the guys got out, there was no ladder. Uh, they just kind of slid out there. If you look at them. It's a long way from that cockpit. It back is. To it's that a bit wing. high. Yeah. They went back there like they would do, could do it in their sleep, slid down the wing, got off on a 450-gallon tank, slid to a stop. <laughs> this is worth telling. And, uh, well, uh, nice to meet you. Uh, so there's a lieutenant colonel leading, kind of a crusty guy, and W.W. Funk. It's just <laughs> He was an advertisement for salt stains under a flight suit. <laughs> said, uh, Anything we can do for you? And the colonel said, is the bar open? 
No, but I, I'm sure we can get it up there. These were the guys who were going to come brief us. <laughs> so, oh, wow. He looked at that airplane. You can't look at one of those things and not think, oh, my God. You know, please. Oh, yeah. So, anyway, we went and did whatever we were doing, at academics or something, and we go into the club for lunch. And we go into the club and front door, and he went through passageway, and then where he sit down and eat? And we looked over. Yeah, they're at the bar. <laughs> and so, after lunch... We were going to go back to the room that had the chairs where we could all sit and get their briefing. Yep. I mean, they were chairs, but, you know, not like they are today. Yeah. So there's this podium. And so they're still in flying suits. And W.W. Funk is sitting next to the lieutenant colonel. The colonel says, the men from the tactical air command, always called it the fighter command, are here to give you your briefing. Okay. And the lieutenant colonel said, Captain Funk's going to give the briefing. So Funk gets up there, and he looks, and he just stares at the audience and said, I don't know what they sent us all the way down here for, because here's the deal. If you guys don't want to be fighter pilots, we don't want your ass. <laughs> he did. I mean, this is unembellished. You know who the lieutenant colonel was? No. Claire Chenault's son oh. of the Flying Tigers. Oh, my goodness. Well... <laughs> They went back to the bar, but they were there the next morning getting ready to leave. Well, we were all up for this. <laughs> With Their arrival was tame compared to leaving. Oh, man. So you know that, well, you've probably heard uh, Oliver Holmes Jr., Wendell Oliver Holmes Jr.'s two or three sentences about such things. He was Civil War veteran, mm -hmm. and then he was assistant uh, judge on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And one day he's uh, he gave a Memorial Day speech, and... Uh, this saying is kind of drafted from two sentences in each speech, and it's been broadcast as a, a single sentence. Mm -hmm. And maybe this kind of explains what happened to me when I saw those moments. He said, uh, and later, and I think this ties in, if I had the last thing to say, this is what I'd want to say. Sure. He said, because a lot of people would ask, a horrendous death toll in the Civil War. Yes. Amongst people of almost the same ilk. And he said, we have shared the incommunicable experience of war. We felt and we still feel the passion of life to its top. In our youths, our hearts were touched with fire. That day, yeah. my heart. And two years later, I was flying the thud. That's incredible. So you asked me, was there any other stories about the thud? I've seen 104s and I've seen 100s, but I'm telling you, in the first time, in the first time, the taxis on final, it wasn't any of this. It was just, Poof, this is incredible. <laughs> Trevor, thank you for taking the time with me. I'm sure you're going to have to repair this thing a lot to where it's presentable. Oh, not a chance. No, this no. is magic sir i want to say thank you this has been incredible i'm so glad i asked to do this episode this is exactly what i was hoping for and i want to say thank you for your 23 years of service it was clearly full of amazing memories it amazing does. friendships yeah. and all the camaraderie that anybody could ever ask for i am so grateful for you and what you sacrificed for this country and the time that you shared with us today I clearly have some homework to do in, in a, a little bit of a video that I need to go check out. I sincerely appreciate everything that you've shared with us today. I look forward to uh, keeping in touch with you going forward. You come back. Let's get in that plane over there. Oh, yep. Yeah. So you can feel it. 
not to learn, not for training. Oh, just, sure. Wow. And for the listeners that can't see, he's, he's pointing over to his uh, his Pitts. Pitts S2A. Uh, S2A over there. And, family uh, model. The family model. It is uh, a magnificent machine. He's got two uh, beautiful aircraft in here. So, yeah, I'll definitely be back, sir. I'm going to take you up on that offer. You bet. For listeners, uh, this has been Boat out here with Colonel uh, John Morrissey. Once again, thank you. Welcome back to the studio, everybody. Still Boat Flying Solo here, and man, what a great time speaking to Colonel Morrissey. And my thanks to him once again for taking the time to recount his experiences in the F-105 and the Vietnam War. He is a passionate squadron mate, a dedicated historian of all things F-105 and clearly cares about those he fought and served with. It was quite an impressive display of a combat warrior frankly every email he sends he ends it with a uh, thud driver so you know he means business and i kind of thought back to my time as i re-listened to the interview and i kind of just imagined watching that hbo series band of brothers and the intro scenes where they would do the interviews with the actual veterans who were being portrayed on the screen and he came to me like he would fit that kind of scene so just amazing stuff. And I think we knew more people like that to tell their stories, if you ask me, because it definitely had me uh, goosebumps at various points. So before we conclude our look at the F-105, though, I did want to expand on a few things that Colonel Morris and I got to talking about after we had uh, finished recording in the subsequent weeks between then and now. We started to touch on a few things, but we didn't really get in-depth enough on them or really cover them at all, frankly. And I thought it was important to go back over those just so that we close the loop on a few things. So first, he and I discussed how the aircraft loss quantity was very high, similar in concept to the F-100, just there weren't as many F-105s produced, and so we didn't have the same quantity of losses. And he kind of summed it up with the unexpected issues that the aircraft had were just frankly never resolved before they went into full rate production and never really had a chance to work out all the kinks, if you will, before it jumped into combat. So he guessed that of the total number of mishaps, which were numerous, obviously about 52% of all of the uh, F-105D through Gs, about 75% of those were due to mechanical issues. And the rest were about pilot error or something related to the pilot's uh, actuation. So he couldn't really specify on any one specific mechanical issue that caused the uh, mishaps, but he synopsized, I guess if that's a word, that the F-105 hadn't been baptized by fire yet. Ironically enough, he's got a giant list and database of all the mishaps that occurred and specifically all the combat or the uh, the losses of F-105 aircraft. And a large number of them actually were caused by fire. So I thought it was kind of an interesting uh, way to label it there. But that then leads us right into the nickname of the aircraft. And I know at the start of the interview, I mentioned it and then we never covered it again. But he did say that the nickname Thud was due to, frankly, the impact noise of the aircraft hitting the ground. And so while before Vietnam kicked off, the nickname had a negative connotation during the war. And then since the war has concluded, it's become, and frankly still is, a term of endearment and affection for its crews, mechanics, and fans. And and I'd agree, it's an iconic and special plane. And it's always been one of those kind of ones in my mind that kind of has this lore about it that only the people that flew it will ever fully appreciate. But Definitely a a special piece of aviation history. So coming up here is the question that was uh, left out of the normal Q&A session, and it was submitted by Andrew out of Wakefield, Rhode Island. And I asked Colonel Morrissey because I just didn't have a lot of data points for the answer from any of the other bomber aircraft that we mentioned or have interviewed 
interviews in the past about. The question that Andrew submitted was related to where bombers would return to after dropping their nuclear bombs on the USSR. And specifically, were there any actual return bases that would probably still be there after World War II or were the bases fake more for like a psychological aspect for the crews? So Andrew, none of the older bombers that we've had on the show, like I said, have had any missions that were planned for nuclear strikes against the USSR during World War II because they were our ally. So by the time the nuclear bomb became available, we used it on Japan, and then the war was ended shortly thereafter. So frankly, there just was never an opportunity to do it. Now, anybody that I've asked has not said that there were targets. There very well possibly could have been, but as far as I'm aware, there's nothing to it. So the reason I left this until after the interview with Colonel Morrissey is because I asked him the same question. And he had mentioned during the interview that he had sat nuke alert. So I asked him this exact same question related to the Vietnam era. And now we're obviously in a different time period and the heart of the Cold War. His answer was, absolutely. My last Soviet target from the nuke alert pad was one of the ICBM sites located in Siberia. And it required, and he, now he's talking about how would he get to it and get back to a recovery airfield? And he says it required finding a KB-50J tanker about 200 miles east of Tokyo, taking on gas, and then proceeding to the target. So I'm assuming that he's going to get on the tanker, and the tanker is going to start driving towards his target area, give him as much gas as possible, and then he's going to take off and go to drop his bombs. So after bomb release, he would then turn and proceed back towards northern Japan, specifically Chitose Air Base. That's where they plan to recover. And he noted there that he was going to land with 400 pounds of gas. So I'll tell you, for comparison's sake, for my time in the Viper, our emergency fuel state was the state that we would land with less than 800 pounds of fuel remaining. And the reason for that was because at 600 pounds or less of fuel remaining, we wouldn't necessarily be able to confirm that the engine was going to continue to run because of how the fuel tanks are set up and the fuel pumps and whatnot. So you may have fuel starvation and your engine may flame out. So when he mentioned 400 pounds, that about blew my mind because that F-105, a very heavy single engine fighter, was not nearly as aerodynamic as an F-16. And it's crazy to me that 400 pounds was their recovery fuel. So, you know, the missions weren't officially labeled as one way, but I think probably everybody can kind of read between the lines and the likelihood that you were going to make all of that successfully happen and survive, you know, the ingress to drop the bombs and everything else, let alone just getting back with 400 pounds of gas is crazy to me. Anyway, all that being said, what a great question. I absolutely think that those bases were definitely psychologically there to boost the morale of the pilots that were going to have to go do these missions for sure. And one thing that uh, I did want to add uh, here before we start the wrap up here, the F-105G. So we did not discuss it. Colonel Morrissey never flew it. The Discussion on the F-105G, the seed mission during Vietnam and everything that's associated with it. We haven't forgotten about it. All right. And we are going to get back to it. We're just trying to figure out the right way to package talking about seed. It's got a long history, both in time and in aircraft that have accomplished it. And so we're trying to do the right thing by it and get you the right platform guests and experience levels and, and all that kind of stuff. So we want to do it justice. We want to do it the right way. And we will definitely uh, circle back to it and, and make sure that we get that accomplished. So don't fret. We haven't forgotten about it. 
Hey, Boat, hold on a second. I got to jump back in here. As everybody remembers, on the last episode, we talked about the new BVR Productions podcast network. Well, one of those shows is Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Program, and it's led by Colin Slade, who joins us now. How are you doing, Colin? Doing very well, Jello. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, you're welcome. Just tell us real quick what your show's about. Yeah, our show, Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast, is all about being an officer in the Air Force and being a member of the profession of arms. Okay, outstanding. So how long has it been going and what episode are you up to now? We've been doing this for about a year and a half now, and we just released episode number 76. We've been doing this weekly since September 18th, 2019. Oh, fantastic. Well, that was my birthday. So uh, I think, wasn't I on the show at one point? I've done a couple shows. Forgive me for forgetting. Yeah, you were on our show. We had you on to talk naval aviation and make us Air Force guys a little bit smarter about one of our joint partners. So great episode, great conversation that we had there, and it was a lot of fun to have you on. Well, fantastic. And it's good to have you and your show in the network. So what are you guys working on right now? Yeah, this is a fantastic opportunity for us to talk a little bit about what's going on because we have talked a lot about what it means to be an officer and the various different career fields and things that go along with that. But what we're doing right now is talking about what an officer should be, getting into the thought leadership side of things, making some recommendations that may or may not be heard by headquarters Air Force. We hope they do about what things that they should change about how we evaluate officers, how we bring them into the system, how we get their commission, and when, what is the ultimate goal of being an officer at all? I mean, obviously on your podcast, you talk about aviation being there in the cockpit, flying around with you know, wearing the zipper suit with your hair on fire and all that's great. But on our podcast, we focus on the officership side of things, making sure that we understand the difference between being a leader versus being a tactician. Outstanding. All right. Well, tell us where we can find it and what it's called again. You can find us at airforceofficerpodcast.com. And the official title of the podcast is Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. You can find it on all the major outlets, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, you name it, we are there and we would love to have your audience come check it out. Okay, outstanding. Well, we'll be sure to share it on our social media. So thanks for stopping by today, Colin. Yeah, and thanks for inviting us to be part of the the partnership, part of the podcast network. We are so excited to be part of it. Awesome. Yeah, all right. Glad to have you. Okay, Boat, back to you. I'll tell you what, this was a ton of fun, but I am spent. I can see why Jello is taking a bit of a break. You know, as always, just a reminder that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Jell and Bruce will be back next time to close out the Century Series with a discussion on the F-106 Delta Dart. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. But until then, as Colonel Morrissey likes to say, keep your mock up. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University.
National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.